two testimonies as we think about the Bible. How many of you know that we are going to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Well, if you haven't heard it, 500 years ago, October 31st, this little innocent, unknown monk did what other monks had done before. He was a professor. He took 95 debating points, nailed it to the public uh, bulletin board, which happened to be the door of the cathedral, and said, I want to debate these points. His students saw it, saw the extent of it, went to the local press place because the Gutenberg press had been invented only 50 years before. Printed them out, sent it around uh, there to all their friends, wherever they might be. And all of a sudden, it sparked the Reformation. The Reformation was not trying to move away from the church. It was to, to change the church back to what it was meant to be, to reform the church. That's re-form the church, back to the scriptures and back to the early fathers. He was called to court on all that he had written, which did not come in line with the teaching of the church. And they pulled him into the diet of, of Worms, Worms. Now, the diet of Worms is not like the South Beach diet. It is a conglomeration of all the power of the kingdom. The prince of the Germanic kingdom was there. The ecclesiastical figures were there, cardinals, bishops, an envoy from the Pope himself. And if the Pope hadn't been so busy building the Sistine Chapel, he may have come. All of the businessmen, the leaders of his day and age, and they asked him to do one thing, revoca, that is, revoke or recant on what you wrote, especially what you wrote about the scriptures. And he took a day to think about it. And he basically said, I am bound to the scripture I have quoted. And my, cap my conscience is captured to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against the conscience, parentheses, that is captured by the word of God. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And for that, he had to go into exile. The reason why he would do that is he had come to believe, as had the early church and the New Testament and the Old Testament, that the Scripture is the written Word of God. It is the voice of God speaking to his people. And being the voice of God, it trumped every other voice. It trumped the Pope when he said something. Now, Pope, Pap, papal infallibility had not been determined yet, but the Pope had a lot of weight. It, it trumped any council of the church throughout the 1,500-year history of what they said. And he banked his whole life, his whole ministry, on the fact 
that the scripture was the word of God. When he had discovered that as a monk in an Augustine uh, in, uh, Augustine monastery, he de developed the reality that this is so important, people have to know this. And that has been one of the earmark of a Protestant church, and especially a Reformed church. Now, I know you all aren't Presbyterian, but part of the rock is Reformed. And Reformed has to do with the teachings that came out of the Reformation. Number one is the primacy, the authority, the ultimate authority of Scripture above all else. Sola Scriptura is the Latin phrase for it. Okay? So the Westminster Confession of Faith begins with the first chapter being all about Scripture. And from that, they draw the rest of their thinking and theology. Testimony 1, Testimony 2. 447 years later, a 18-year-old boy gets a job at a summer camp taking care of 8-year-old boys in a cabin. Nighttime comes. They've been running around all day. They're so excited. We just had a campfire. It was great. You know how hard it is to get eight-year-old boys to go to sleep at camp? Yeah, okay. It's hard to get them to sleep at home. So this 18-year-old boy takes out the only thing he had to read, which is a copy of Good News for Modern Man, the New Testament, and begins to, begins to read. Starts at Matthew. I mean, how do you read a book? You start at the first page and you work your way back. Started Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And for the first time in his life, he realized who Jesus really said he is and who he is. He'd, he'd, been grow, he'd grown up in the church. He'd gone to church every Sunday. He sat in the second or third pew back on the right-hand side, right in front of the pulpit. He had heard biblical preaching. He had gone through youth groups, Sunday school, everything. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes alive. Reads through Acts and realizes, man, this, this is real. These guys really believed this. They were willing to give their life. And then he hits Romans. And it's just like arrow shot. There is none who are righteous. No, not one. Well, that was pretty good. I'm the one I'm talking about. My, name, my nickname when I was growing up was Georgie Goody Two-Shoes. I had to be good. No. That all of us are captured by sin. And then I hit Romans 9, 10, 11. Hit 10. Where it says, if you believe in your heart that Christ rose from the dead and confess him with your mouth, you will be rescued, saved. And all of a sudden it hit home. And that book that had simply been pages became a living thing because I met the living Savior. One night after having read that and realizing what I need, I walked around this lake and kneeled in front of a white cross in an outdoor chapel and by the presence and help of the Spirit, surrendered my life to Christ. And that book became my book. It was dog-eared copy. I went back to, to college, not a very 
godly college. But I knew one thing I had to do was read that book. And I kept reading and reading and reading. I got, I got what I sensed a call to the ministry. I went to seminary. And the first thing I started to do was to learn the scriptures. New Testament, Old Testament. John Calvin's Institutes, which is one of the 11 books that you ought to read. Any Christian ought to read it. Which is simply an exp explanation of the scriptures and how to understand them. And all of a sudden, in my, fresh, my first year at seminary, we called us juniors. Because those, the ones in the third class, the seniors, used to beat on us all the time. All of a sudden, I mean, this book just opened up. And every day, I try to read a portion. I have read through the Bible for 30 years using this format I gave you. Um, I can't say I have done it all. I, I miss a few days, and, but I try to catch up. That's why I like this system. You only have to do 25 readings, which means every Sunday you get off, and maybe you get one or two other days in that month to catch up and if you haven't made it. But I've read it through and through and through. And even when I read it now, there are new things that jump out to me. And it has changed my life. As well as it is the plumb line by which I, I spend my time discerning and thinking about everything else that happens. That's the power and that's the position of Scripture. And what you are embarking on, you know, you're like Frodo Baggins after the dwarfs have come and given him the contract to wake up in the morning. And he starts running and the people ask, Mr. Frodo, where are you going? I'm going on an adventure. <laughs> you're starting an adventure. An adventure to, to discover a book that you may have read parts. You may have heard parts. But you're going to get to see the whole picture. Now, I will tell you, there are dwarves, and there are elves, and there are goons, and there are ugly dogs. There are all sorts of things in that book, and there are all sorts of things that will want to keep you from that book, but you work your way through to understand the overall picture of the book, the map that the dwarves had back, in, back to, the, uh, to the mountain, to where the treasure laid, and you will get to understand who God is, what he wants from you, what he's done for you, who you are, and how then you ought to live. All from one book. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Testimonies. Uh, review of the class. You have God's big picture book, whatever form it may be in. Some of you may have it on, on Kindle or electronic devices. That's fine. Um, do we have the dates? Deanna, did you get a copy of the dates of the next classes? No. That didn't get sent to you? Bad Andy. I don't know. I, I, I know I sent it to Jason to verify. So, well, if not, we'll get it to you. I will tell you the next class is November 19th.
2017. Okay. But one one thirty here. Uh, and you you will you have the material. Okay. Let's take an overview of the Bible. The Bible is one book with one author through a diversity of people with a unified message pointing to one person. And the, the critical word in there is one. You cannot divide this book because of its unity, its oneness. By the numbers, there's one volume. So you can carry one volume in your hand. And uh, personally, I like to carry it in my hand. I have electronic copies. But there's something about holding the book itself that is, uh, is precious. That one volume is written by 40 authors over 2,000 years. Uh, that's a long time. That's a lot of authors. But at the same time, it's unified. We'll talk about that. That one volume has 66 books. Those 66 books are divided into two sections. It's called Covenant or Testament, the New Testament, the Old Testament. But they're basically two sections for one book. Um, on the left-hand side, you have the Old Testament, 39 books. They are written basically in Hebrew, but also a little Aramaic thrown in especially when you get to Daniel. Part of Daniel is in Aramaic, though our translations keep it back into English. A term you will hear is that uh, about two, 300 B.C., the Hebrew and Aramaic was translated into Greek. And the Greek Old Testament was the Greek, was the Old Testament of Jesus' day. They knew Hebrew and some of them knew Aramaic, but basically they read it from the Greek. Paul was a scholar in the Greek, what we call the Septuagint. That's capital L, capital X, capital X, Roman numerals, the 70, 70 people who translated it. And it's one of the reasons why quotes in the New Testament are different than a Hebrew Old Testament because they're translated. That works. Under those Old Testament books, you have 17 books that are history. You have five books that are wisdom and 17 books that are prophets. 17, 5, 17. You can even remember this kind of stuff, right? Under the prophets, you have two sets of prophets. One major prophets, five books by four authors. Twelve books that are called minor prophets. Now, the reason they're called major and minor has nothing to do with their message. In fact, more, some more of the Old New Testament teaching comes from the minor prophets than it does the major. For instance, Paul talks about how we are justified by faith. And he takes a quote. And that quote comes from the, the prophet Habakkuk, who was one of those minor prophets. But that's a very core doctrine of the, of the scripture and of the Christian faith. Um, Jeremiah doesn't say that in those words, nor does Isaiah. But, but he took it from Habakkuk. Under the, 
the history, you have five that are the Pentateuch, these are the books of Moses, and 12 that are history of the new nation, from Joshua, from moving into the promised land, to the exile, and then the return from the exile. On the other side, you have the New Testament, and that's 27 books. The last time I saw 27 and 39 is 66. I'm just testing your math and making sure mine was okay, okay? Whew, tough class. Uh, five of them, like the Old Testament, are history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what we call the Gospels, the good news. Written from a variety of viewpoints about the same person. So you get different pictures through different lenses of one person. And then you have the fifth book, which is the Acts. Sometimes in Bibles, say the Acts of the Apostles. Well, I think that's a misnomer. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And what you're doing, once you've seen the person of Jesus in the Gospels, then you see the other comforter, another comforter, one just like Jesus who's at work within the people progressing the kingdom. You have 21 books that are called epistles, and epistles are not the wives of apostles. Epistles are letters. Of those letters, 13 are from Paul, and eight are from other writers. That Those eight include Hebrews, James, which you are learning all about Sunday morning, Peter, John, and Jude. Now some, and I, I fluctuate on this, but some even of us even think that Paul wrote Hebrews. That's a, that's a scholarly debate. So it could be 14 and 7, which makes more perfect numbers, but that's okay. And finally, you have the last book, which is Revelation. I I don't know if it came through on yours like it did on my, yep, silly printer. You set it up and all of a sudden it changes your format. And Revelation goes from one end of the page to the next line. Okay. Revelation, better known as the Apocalypse, which some people consider a scary book. I think it's an exciting book. And if you understand it in a New Testament setting, it's a terrific book. And it's well worth you beginning to understand. So that's the book by the numbers. Gives you an idea of the total makeup of what you're going to be working with. One author. God revealed himself through this book. God has two means of revelation. And he talks about them to us or he shows and especially the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19. Here's David, who probably, and again, this is hypothetical because we don't know the date in which he wrote this, but probably wrote this when he was a shepherd out in the fields watching his flock by night. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber 
and like a strong man runs his course with joy, it's rising from the end of the heavens and a circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his heat. General revelation. The creation shows that there is a God. And I love the way in which he describes the sun. It's like it's coming out of a tent. You know, we talk about the sunrise, which is phenomenal, phenomenological language. That is, that's the way it looks. It's not the way. I call it the earth rotation. What a beautiful earth rotation it was this morning. <laughs> we rotated and the sun seemed to come up, okay? He says, like, come. it comes out and it lights up everything. Paul read that and knew it. And he said in Romans 1 that the creation declares who God is, his eternal attributes, so that you are, cannot say there is no God with any reasonableness. Now, I know in our day and age there are people that say there is no God, but it is because they don't want to see him. The reason they don't want to see him, they don't want to have to deal with him because when God comes out, it's light over everything, and they love the darkness more than the light. They want to keep their darkness more than the light. And so they make up all sorts of what really becomes flimsy excuses why there is no God. Everybody from here to Dayton to the furthest person in the smallest tribe in a way back area of the world, intuitively, or from creation, knows there is a God. That's one revelation. But you only know his eternal attributes. The writer goes on and says, it's more than that. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired are they than gold, much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. More by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward. Every noun subject in that is another word describing the word of God, the law and all that. And listen or look at the way in which it's described. It's true. It's perfect. It's, it's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. And it's to be desired even more than fine gold, sweeter than any honey. This is uh, that special revelation, the unveiling that God has given to us. Not only in creation, but he's given it to us in writing. So that we can be able to have a copy of it. Another text for this is from 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17. Who would like to read that? I need a drink. <laughs> okay, I'm working. Second Timothy 3. You go past Ephesians, Philippians. If you got to Hebrews, you went too far. Take a left turn and go back. Uh, 
Third chapter, 10 to 17. Okay, thank you. First few verses, Paul is just telling Timothy he's got to continue on in what he's learned. It's in verse 14 where he comes to the point, continue what you've learned and firmly believed in, knowing where you learned it, the sacred writings. And again, that's a reference to the Old Testament. And these sacred writings were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, that should tell us a little bit about the Old Testament. Some look at the Old Testament and say, well, those are just stories of Israel. And that's all they pointed to. Paul is saying, no, they didn't point to Israel. They pointed to Christ. And they pointed to who he was and, or who he was going to be and how he would come. And when you read the Old Testament, you're looking for Christ. Not just nice moral stories. Not just little phrases that you can use. But you're looking to how each passage talks about Christ and who he is. Because that's how the early church learned the Old Testament. And then he says, you learn salvation in which you came. All scripture is breathed out. Notice that word all. I looked it up in the original. You know what it means in the original? All. Every one of it. Every part. Not one word, not one section is not part of the inscripturated or written down word of God. So you can't leave out an an or a the or a certain word. They all have to be included. We call this the plenary um, of, of Scripture. That all the words, even the most in, insignificant. Paul could pick this up because he knew the Old, Pro, Old Testament prophets. They went around saying, this is the Lord. This comes from the Lord. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord showed me. And he, they wrote it out. Now, if they were had not been directed or spoken to by the Lord and they wrote that, they're liars. You shouldn't even listen to them. They lie about that. They lie about other things. But there they are telling them that God had claimed to speak through them. So it's plenary. It's breathed out. Some of your translations, like the NIV, will say it's inspired by God. And that's not what the word means. The word means really inspired. 
it was exhaled from his mouth. He gave it out to them. Inspired has that idea. Well, they were sitting there thinking one day, and there's Jeremiah. He's looking at the history and looking on what's going on in his country. He said, got an idea. They're in trouble. Therefore, I'm going to write down this. this. No. Uh, as, a, as a word puts it, God was with him when he wrote his words. So that his word, that Jeremiah's words were his words. Turn back a little bit to, toward the back of the book to Second uh, Peter. Or if you have an electronic device, go back to the menu, find Second Peter, hit it, <laughs> find first chapter, and then you got to scroll down until you come to the 16th verse, okay? <laughs> I know how to do that. I just don't like to do it, okay? Someone read Second Peter 1, 16 down through 21. Okay, that helps, that's probably the locus classic, the classical location or passage of how this came about. Put yourself in Peter's position when he was writing this. He's, what's he start out with? He starts out by describing an event to which he was in which he was present. Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus takes the inner three. Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain. While they're there, he is transfigured. That is, the glory of God that was in him all of a sudden came out to the place where he was whiter than any cleaner could ever get anything white. And while they are there, they hear this voice say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it's the voice of God, audibly, they're there with Moses and Elijah, two guys they thought were dead, but are there. And what did God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you have a book with cross-references, it ought to have Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 is where, Jesus, where God says, this is my anointed one, my son, in whom I am well pleased. God is quoting his own word. Not to Jesus, because Jesus already knows this. 
It happened at his baptism and other times. He's quoting that to Peter. They are part of what is probably the, the second most glorious event beyond, behind the resurrection. And yet, what does he say? Even though I have firsthand experience of hearing God, of seeing who Jesus is, we have something more sure than my own experience. We have the Word of God. Now, think about our day and age. What's more impressive? First of all, you know one thing. Peter did not come from Missouri, the show-me state. Okay? He doesn't need to have it evidence to him. He said, if you want to see something, look at the Word of God. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is not simply the prophets sitting down and writing their own words. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is a naval term. It is the wind blowing the sail that pushes the boat. If there's no wind, the boat doesn't go anywhere. Remember, have you ever seen Mutiny on the Bounty? There comes a time when they all have to get out on, on boats, little rowboats, and go to the front and row to keep the ship going forward until the wind comes. And they do this for days and days and days, and they're exhausted because there's no wind. But when the prophets and when the people were writing, the Spirit blew, carried them along. So what they wrote is what the Spirit wanted to have written. Again, maybe a little fanciful, but I can see Isaiah down there writing and he gets to a point and he says, uh-oh, that's not right. Takes his little pen and scratches out. They didn't have pencils. Scratches it out and continues to write. And what he wrote the second time is what the Spirit wanted him to write. He's overseeing. Now, these people wrote out of their own culture, out of their own times. You won't hear the United States of America in there because the United States of America didn't come for centuries later. They wrote in their own language, at their own education level. Some of them were highly educated men, priests who would have had a terrific education. And others were sheep herders who didn't have much of an education, but they had enough to write down what they could. And God uses both of them in that. We call that... Uh, the verbal inspiration or the words themselves have been chosen by God to express his mind and his will. It's breathed out. It's inerrant. That means it's without error. There is no error in the scripture. I, for the last 170 years, there are people saying, oh, the scriptures are riddled with contradictions and error. For instance, it talks about such and such a city in this book and there's no way in which there was a city there. We have no background for that city. And then the archaeologists go out with their shovel and they dig down deep enough and sure enough, there's a city. Hold it. Well, that's one error taken off the list. 
I had uh, an acquaintance of mine who had a friend in seminary who said, yeah, the scripture is riddled with contradictions. So the guy, he's a philosophy major, said, okay, you spend the next night and I want you to show me 24 contradictions that you think. Next day they got together after class and they went through it. And little by little they said, it may be a paradox, it may be difficult to understand how this works, but that's not a contradiction. And you may have a wrong idea about this, but that's not a contradiction. And little by little, over the last 170 years, people have tried to show one contradiction and have never been able to successfully do it. Now they claim they have, but the more you study, you realize they haven't. Therefore, this book is without error. When it talks about something, it's talking the truth. Even if what they tr talk about is not true. Take the book of Job, which you'll get to read part of it. You've heard the story of Job. Every, he loses everything and he gets four, three friends that come to him and a fourth one later. And they sit down next to him for a week and they're silent. The best time they ever had. Because then they start to open their mouth. And they begin to tell Job the right theological ideas about what's taking place. But they're all wrong because they don't know the story. And they don't fit in the situation. And Job has to put up with these guys. I mean, they were more enemies than they were friends. Even the Bible tells you those kind of events. And one of the other parts of it, man, it tells you the worst of people, even the best of people. David is a friend of God, a murderer, an adulterer, egomaniac. I mean, the, guy, the guy's really messed up, has a horrible family. Talk about dysfunctional families. Your son wants to kill you and take over your throne. But that's true. It's, it's, that's the way it was. And that's the beauty of the Bible. Most other stories of great people try to leave out that part. Not the Bible. Inerrant. Infallible. Incapable of failing. It's a passage from Isaiah that says, The word of the Lord will never return to him void, empty. It will accomplish the thing for which he set it out to do. And that's exactly what happens. It's infallible. Sufficient. It's all, all you need to understand God and your salvation. Now, it's not all you may want to understand, but it's all you need to understand. For instance, one of my questions will be, Lord, why did you take 19 years? Almost 19 years. I would have liked to have been saved back when I was 10, where I could start reading your word and, and work on my character so I don't have to overcome the flaws that I had by the time I was almost 19, some of which are still staying with me. But he says, you don't need to know that. Not now. And it's not, you're not going to find it in the Bible. You're not going to find who you ought to marry. I'm sorry. You, will never, you, you can't go to any book and say, oh, yeah, this is the person. You may not find what work you're supposed to be in. 
There are some things that the Spirit does, but He will also help you find out as you go through the book. It is sufficient to understand salvation. It is clear. We call that perspicuity. That is, any well-intentioned literary reader who employs a reasonable means of understanding can understand this book. We have... uh, we have seven children, and a couple of them came to Christ by the time they were four years old, three, just starting to read. Precocious little kids they are, yes. But they also, even at eight or nine, could read the book and understand what it has to say. Not everything, but it was clear enough. Luther, after the Diet of Worms, went back to a castle hidden as a knight, and what he did was translate the Hebrew and Greek scriptures into common German language. Why? Because he wanted everyone to read the Word of God in his or her own language. William Tyndale started the same thing long before Luther because he wanted the the plowboy in the field who had no, almost no education to be able to read the scriptures and understand their salvation. It's clear enough, and yet it's deep enough that you can spend 80 years reading it and not finalize understanding it. Some of you will say, isn't there an end point when I get everything? No. It's one of my picadillos. I think when we get to heaven, and we're perfect, we're going to read Scripture and still be understanding what it has to say. And some of us who are teachers of Scripture still will have a job because we will understand it and then we will spend the time teaching. So in heaven, you're all going to come to Divine Street number 5, <laughs> 110 Divine Street number 5, and we'll sit down and we'll discuss the Scriptures and we'll see how Christ is in all of it. Okay, But it's clear enough, you can read it and understand. It is uh, verbal, even the words themselves. That is one of the reasons why we are deliberate about suggesting what kind of translation you get. We have Hebrew and Greek. They're translated into English. Unless you can read Greek and Hebrew, which some of my friends can. I can read a little Greek. I have to practice a whole lot. I hated Hebrew. It was chicken scratch to me. I couldn't understand it. So I don't really deal. I have a son-in-law who loves it and still reads from his Hebrew Bible when he's not on the field with his Marines. You, You have a translation. And in any translation from one language to another, you've got to deal with words or syntax that doesn't make sense in your language. So you have to play with it a little bit. But you at least want to keep the main message of the words. I was, I was the, one of the means of my salvation was a good news for modern man. I would not suggest that as a Bible for you. The living Bible and the message are paraphrases, which means they take a translation of the original language, and they really change it around. Now, it may have some insight, but it's not a good study Bible. 
when you want to get to a good study Bible, you have two, basically two options in our day and age. You have the dynamic equivalence, and that is to take believing that the language is living or uh, can have a lot of nuances. It will take a passage and it will try to fit it into the culture into which they are writing. NIV is a good example of that. And our uh, new Revised Standard Version does that to some extent as well. Um, what you end up with is you lose some of the accuracy of the original. So you go back one more step to what's called a literal translation. Essentially literal. As literal as you can get, that is following the kind of language it is. And yet being able to put it into English. Uh, my parent, my, my dad comes from Pennsylvania Dutch country. Pennsylvania Dutch were named that way, not because they came from the Netherlands, but because they were German, and the word for German was Deutsche. See, so, we're Pennsylvania Deutsche. Oh, Pennsylvania Dutch. And they have a way of speaking. <coughs> Down the road I run. Sounds like yoga. <laughs> you know. And that's simply because that's German directly into English. Essential um, literal translation does the same thing, but they try to keep it within a context of that. A New American Standard does the best of that. English Standard Version is the one of my preference because it does it almost as well, but it does it in a much more readable context. Uh, I grew up at Seminary and Beyond on the New American Standard. But when the ESV came out and I began to read it, in fact, this copy is one of the first copies printed because I was at the convention where they introduced it. Um, I began to see that it flows better. It reads better. And when I read it aloud, it sounds like better English. Is that good English, better English? I guess so. So those are the, the two main ones. The New King James could be, but the New King James has a problem in the original manuscripts it uses. So New American Standard, ESV, it's fine. That's where you're going to find it following this list of what it means to be breathed out. Then you have, not only is it breathed out as profitable, for teaching, showing the correct way, giving you the correct thought. For reproof, that is showing where you are wrong, where you've gone astray. Reproof is like your mirror in the morning. You wake up and think you look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> you really look like Barney Fife. <laughs> but the mirror, yeah, the mirror will show you every wart, every problem you have with your face. The wrinkle, well you guys don't have wrinkles yet, but the wrinkles you'll get on your eyes. The jowls that are there. It will, and it is unrelenting because it's reproving you. Okay? But once it's reproved you, then it shows you the correction. How do you get back on track? It's like our first GPS. It was a Magellan. We'd put in the address, it would show us a way. We'd be going down the street, 
I'd forget to turn or it didn't warn me in what I considered a timely fashion and I'd miss the turn. And Miss Magellan, as I called her when she showed us the right way, would become Mrs. Magellan. You miss the turn, turn around at the first opportunity. <laughs> Take a left here, another left, another left, a right, and you'll get back there. That's correction, showing me how to get back. And finally, training in righteousness. How do you live in a correct relationship with God? That's what the Word does. That's why it's so powerful. It's also why people stay away from it. Um, people don't like the Word of God because it is a mirror. I'm not that bad. You want to make a bet? You're worse than that. <laughs> so I don't have to correct that. That's fine. God loves me the way I am. Have you ever heard people say that? My response is, yeah, but he loves you enough not to keep you the way you are. Okay? If the Bible is a light that shines in the darkness, the darkness hates it and does not want to see it. And therefore, it is something that, that's difficult for some people to read. Uh, sin will either keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin. Take your pick on that. Okay. Uh, therefore, at the end of Psalm 19, which is one of my favorite ways to send, spend a word, especially a prayer, especially when I'm going to be teaching, may the meditations of my mouth and of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I mean, that's what you're looking for. Okay, any questions so far? Because I need a drink of water. Did you ever turn Mrs. out the window? No, 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 because we couldn't afford Mr. Wright. <laughs> no, I never threw, we never threw him out. He died with smartphones. And now he's died with my OnStar because I can, get, I can get the directions on this little screen. I'm trying to find a TV show, but it gives me the directions where to go. <laughs> okay, no. I, I, but it does the same thing. Silly, silly bear. Anything else about that? We're not done yet. Although I may be overdone, you're not. Okay, application. Let's take a look at a little bit of, of that. What's, that. what's all this mean to us? One, you need to center your life and church life around the written word of God. It's one of the reasons why throughout the ages, especially since the printing press, and people could have copies of the Bible. We have counseled people, get into the Word. Read it. Learn it. That's why we're having this class. So you see the overview and then you can go looking at the trees. You need to set up your day when you're into this book. And you're reading it. 
we need some adjustment on the air conditioning, huh? Cold, it's hot. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> so you read it, you study it, you memorize it, you meditate on it, you learn it, but most of all, you obey it. Meditation is a, a neat thing, and we're not talking yoga meditation or Zen Buddhism meditation. We're talking cow meditation. You know how cows turn green grass into white milk? Unless you're a brown cow and then it's chocolate milk. <laughs> they eat the green grass, they chew it, they bring it back up into another stomach, they chew it, then they bring it back up and they do this several times and eventually it becomes milk. Meditation on the scripture is not going, hmm, wonderful. It is going over and over and over and over it again until it really sinks in. It becomes part of you. And then you have to go out and obey it. Uh, privately and corporately. One of the signs, well, see, again, modern age. <sighs> I am the fusion of Bible scholars. Part gasoline engine, part electric engine. You see, I think everyone ought to have a printed Bible. Because the way you tell how well a person is reading about, you look at it. I mean, are there whole sections that look like it's never been opened? Well, you know, you know they're not reading their whole Bible. Uh, you are... Uh, un Unlike some would say, you are allowed to write in your Bible. It's the words that are holy, not the book. You can underline. In fact, if you see some of my study Bibles, you'll see they're all underlined words in the margin. Who was it? Beth, who has the best? She's not here today. Um, you know, this... This book ought to be falling apart because you use it so much. I've had a couple Bibles where I've had to take super glue and re-glue the, uh, between the sections because they were falling apart and I didn't want to lose it. See, that's making it the center of your life. And I'm not saying that you do like I can do because I'm pastor and also because I'm semi-retired, spend 20 or 2 to 3 hours a day doing it. If you just spend half an hour a day doing it, pretty soon your Bible will become your best friend. Also realize this, someday you're going to go to heaven if you're a follower of Christ. If you're not, you need to repent and come to Christ, believe in Christ, repent and believe. Someday you're going to be walking down the street of gold, divine street number 10, and you're going to meet this guy called Habakkuk. And you're going to say, hi, Habakkuk, my name is Andy. And he's going to look at you and say, did you read my book? And you're going to go, your book? What book? Well, you know, one of the minor prophets. Oh, never worried about them. They're minor. Man used by God to give you the word of God and you haven't read it. You know, I don't know if you can be this in, in heaven, but I think you'll be extremely embarrassed.
Oh, man, did I miss out? I'm going to go back and read it. Okay? But that's making it the center of your life. Honor the Word. Um, in some churches, obviously not this one, at the very front they have an open Bible. And it's set up there, not because they ever read it, but it's a way of saying, this is the Word of God, and this is what directs us in what happens. Uh, read in Nehemiah 8, when they were finished building the wall, they had a worship service. And they sent out the chief priest to go out there. And he opened up the scroll. It didn't have a book. They had a scroll. And when he opened it up, everybody stood. Some Reformed churches, and I'm not suggesting you do this, but highly encouraging it. When the Bible is read, everybody stands. Out of respect, not for the person who's reading it, but for the words that are being read and the authority behind it, God himself. Take it for what you want. That's, that's a freebie. You don't have to do it. You're not less of a Christian if you don't. You're more of a Christian if you do. No. <laughs> Contradict your free, previous phrase. Uh, be careful that you do not place anything above the word. Uh, we listen to the opinions of others. We listen to the theology of others. We listen to tradition or family, all of which Luther himself was fighting against when he made his stand. You need to be like the Bereans. Paul went to the Thessalonians, preached the word of God, and got kicked out. Three weeks. Not much of a church plant. He went down to the Bereans, and he said the Bereans were of more noble character because they actually wanted to read what Paul was quoting and talking about. And they went back to their house and looked it up. You spend Sunday afternoon looking up the scriptures and thinking about them? Well, if you don't have Sunday afternoon, during the week, you set up a time. That's honoring the word. That's being careful not to place anything above it. Um, th that it's that important. Let's learn what's in this book and how to interpret it. The big word is hermeneutics. Um, you recall what you're interpreting. You're interpreting the word of God in the words of men, and therefore you do it in reverence and in prayer. When you sit down, you just don't start reading. You pray about it. In fact, one of the habits... I occasionally use is I like Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 22 sections, eight verses to every section. I take the, the day in which it is and I go to that section. I have them numbered 1 to 22 in my Bible and I read that as my opening prayer because every section talks about the Word of God and its influence to you. So before you read, you pray. I mean, who, you have a favorite book. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. Who wouldn't love to sit down, if you could, with J.R.R. Tolkien and say, what did you mean by this? And he answers you. You have a book that has been 
breathed on and sculptured by the Holy Spirit, then you ask him, well, Holy Spirit, show me what you meant. You never take that on face value. You have to have it. Uh, others look at it and say, is that what he really meant? But that's what you do. Find the best guides for interpreting. Allow the Holy Spirit um, and to be your guide. And this is not mysticism, but it's prayer. And it's a lot of hard work, but it's worth it. Allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture. If it's one book, then something elsewhere is going to speak to a section you're reading. And that's kind of the rule of faith of interpreting the Scripture and reading it. The clear is supposed to give light to the obscure. For instance, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is obscure because it has so many symbols from the Old Testament and we don't know the Old Testament well enough to be picking them up as we go through. And so what we make locusts with huge wings, helicopters with stinger missiles. Because the Holy Spirit told us that's what it is. John never had an idea of what a helicopter was, let alone a stinger missile. But it's an Old Testament image of what needs to be said. Uh, so you always say, but you allow the clear to interpret the puzzling parts. You allow the latter to help the former. New the New Testament is within the old, but the Old Testament is explained by the new. For instance, Jeremiah writes about the crying women of Ramah, Ramah who have lost their children because of a horrific event that took place. Well, Matthew reads that, and he applies it to Jesus when he was forced out of uh, Bethlehem by Herod's army, told by an angel to go down to Egypt. And Herod sent his soldiers, who killed maybe 8 to 15 of infants between 0 and 2. And, and Matthew says, well, this is the prophecy of Jeremiah. Women will weep over their children and go, well, that doesn't seem plain from when Jeremiah wrote. That's not the point. The point is the New Testament is telling you what Jeremiah was really looking at and how it can be used. Okay. Then I write 10 guidelines for unlocking a passage. First of all, you seek a personal relationship with the author. It's because without a personal relationship without being rightly related with God, without having the Holy Spirit in you, this book may not make a whole lot of sense. But when you have that relationship, when you have repented of your sins and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which you are commanded to do by God, then the Holy Spirit is given to you and the author is there to help you understand it, to help you even to accept that this is what the book says. A book written by God. Knowing the author gives you insight into its purpose. Secondly, read it like you do any other book. Pay attention to everyday matters. Grammar, literary structure, definitions are all important. Uh, read any part of the Bible 
in its context. It's an old phrase. A text without a context is a pretext. You can make a text say anything you want if you take it out of its context. For instance, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we say, okay, that's parenthood. That's what you do. Put it in its context. Basically, in this context, it's saying, if you allow a child to, to live and grow up the way they want to, yes, they will never depart from who they are. Which, in essence, says... You better handle them, teach them, disciple them, deal with them, and let your no be no and your yes be yes. Totally different understanding in the context. And yet, how many Christian radio programs and Christian counselors I've heard use that to say exactly the opposite of what it means? Okay. For instance, that's it. Um... Let the known interpret the unknown. Clear deals with the vague. Next one, affirm the rule of faith. The doctrine, core doctrines of the words provide a framework for properly interpreting. Again, I mentioned John Calvin wrote his institutes as a way to understand the whole Bible as in, its, uh, in what it's saying. And maybe instead of using God's big picture, we ought to use Calvin's institutes. Oh, yeah, you'll love that. We did it in one semester in seminary, 200 pages a week, major page, paper on each of those, and then come back and you had to be able to talk about the passage. All oh, those were the good old days. <laughs> no, that's, that's seminary work. But the core doctrines, um, every Sunday, we... We uh, recite the Nicene Creed. That's the core doctrines. Let them un help you understand the whole thing, what we believe. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Biblical writers will appeal to other Scriptures. Uh, most good study Bibles have a very complete cross-reference where it will give you where that same idea is shown somewhere else or the, it will give you where that passage has been cited elsewhere or from which it came, read the whole thing. Read, go back to where it was cited and see how they fit together. Okay, You get the idea this is not something you do for five minutes a day. It takes a little longer. Put the teaching of Scripture into practice. You will get only as much as you are willing to give. God will keep pulling you back to the same teaching until you've learned the lesson. Just like Mrs. Magellan would keep saying to me, turn, you've got to turn around. Turn, you missed the turn. Turn! You will keep learning the same thing over and over until you begin to practice it. And he will not take you any further than that. One of the reasons we have truncated Christians is they have decided they know better and they don't want to do what God says. I've, I've gotten up to here and this is okay with me. 
And that's all they're going to grow because they don't realize they need to go up here. And that's putting it into practice. Be conscious of the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, we are not perfect. Have you found that out? <laughs> We're not perfect. We like our ideas. We like what we think. We like who we are. And we will allow that to over or trump uh, what Scripture has to say. I mean, what's at least in the church and the part of the church that I'm part of, the overarching theme is not only justice but love. God loves everybody. He loves them all the same. And He wants them to be happy. And therefore, do what you want to do because God loves you. He wants you to be happy. And that, if that makes you happy, it's good with God. Doesn't matter if you're sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Doesn't matter if you want a spouse of the same sex. Doesn't matter if it's okay to lie and to cheat and to cross your fingers when you're taking a vow in order that you can get in and make the changes. That happened in my denomination back in the 50s and 60s and people are now quite open. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't believe what we said we believed. We just wanted to get in to change it. Smack the head. See? No. Yeah, God loves in the sense that he gives what we need to every person. Rain, sun, food, housing. But he doesn't love in that personal relationship except for those who come to him through Jesus Christ. Justified by faith through grace, through Christ, by Christ. See? We have our picadillos. I can do whatever I want. And Paul said, no, I only do that which is beneficial for other people. Okay? The scripture will help you. And you have to do that when you come to the scripture. Uh, allow scripture to interpret the culture, not culture the scripture. The example I just gave you is one where culture helps to interpret Scripture. Well, Jesus didn't know anything about homosexuality because it wasn't prevalent in his day. He didn't know anything about true love between people of the same sex. He didn't know that you could change your gender or you could. it was okay to say, though you are genetically male, you can be female. That just wasn't in his day and age. Therefore, it's right. Because he just didn't, wasn't wise enough. And you kind of look and say, God in human flesh wasn't wise enough? <laughs> but that's where culture, and, and again, I, I, out of my denominational background, this is the stuff I hear. Culture has determined scripture. Don't do that. Scripture is the norm. It's the plumb line. It's the canon. That's C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N. Some people use it like a C-A-N-N-O-N <laughs> and bombard people. It is the rule. And everything has to match up to that. You know, when, end comes to end, when the end comes, everything is going to line up 
exactly the way the scripture is. And everybody who hasn't lined up the scripture is going to be, oh man, I missed it. It was there all the time. Pay attention to the genres. Different ways of expression. Summer songs. Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Psalms, and I'll show it to you more. Hebrew poetry is not words that sound alike at the end of a, of a phrase or a line. Jack and Jill went up the hill to catch a pail of water. Jack came down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. It's parallelism. It's one statement amplified or, con or uh, put in the negative in the next one. And it's the two of them together that give you the whole idea. So you won't hear rhyming. And for me, who only likes poetry that rhymes and doesn't like these poetries that go, what in the world? They broke the sentence right there, you know? <laughs> um, You've got to get used to the way in which they wrote. Uh, they wrote history without the benefit of being in the 21st century. So they talk about it's the year of King Josiah in his sixth month and his seventh day because they didn't have 587 B.C. There was no B.C. It was only the year of the king. So they write in a different way, which a good study Bible will have notes in the bottom saying, oh, you know what he means by this? Well, this is April 4th, 587 B.C., what well, we would understand it to be. Uh, also, prose is different from poetry. You don't treat poetry like prose. You take it symbolically. Prose is meant to be uh, more didactic than that. Keep in mind the Bible's overarching story, its glorious outcome. The overarching story is that you have one book by one author who is explaining one person who has one kingdom that is expanding into this one world. And that's the overarching point of not only this book, but also the book you're going to be reading. That is what you need to focus on as you go through each one of that. And in that, it's a story of how God rescues a sin-stained person from the wrath of himself to bring him into perfection with him. That's what he's working at. So, how to use the Bible? Hear it. You know, when you read the Bible, do you ever read it out loud? People ask, how can you stay focused on reading the Bible? Read it out loud. Because you're listening as well as speaking. And when you read it out loud, you have to read closely. You can't say, in the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was with God, and I have to go to the bank today to cash that check. I <laughs> say, <laughs> you can't do that when you're reading it. You keep focused on it, and you hear it. You're hearing. Um, pray it. I told you about Psalm 119. My, my morning prayers begin by doing five psalms a day. 150 psalms, 30 days a month normally, five a day. I start from Psalm 1, I read the first five. 
And then when I'm reading through, I pick out things to pray. Like, Lord, I'm glad that you have your anointed one whom you have anointed as king. He is blessed. I'm, I'm to listen to him. And when he says in the latter part of that song, kiss the son. See, so you do something like that and it comes real to you. This is why you do it on your own so you don't look dumb. <laughs> but, but you read and, and as you read the Psalms, they're your prayer book. They're your song book and that's your prayer book. And you can develop whole prayers from that. Uh, worship from it. I didn't say worship it. Some people say that we are Bible worshipers now. But worship from it. Everything has to be in line with what this book says. So study it. Meditate on it. Chew it over. Um, spend time with it. However you develop that in your own life. Because that's what's important. And the last part, whatever the scripture has been allowed to do its work, it brings reformation and revolution in self, in others, in church, in the world. This is what we have learned from the Reformation. You let this book loose, and all heaven breaks loose. You chain this book, and all hell breaks loose. Because this is the Word of God, and it has the work of the Spirit behind us. We, in the Reformation background, are, are famous for saying we are Reformed and always reforming. Some people live, leave out that last phrase that says, according to the Word and the Spirit. I have people say, yeah, we're reform, Reformed and always reforming. That means we always have to be changing. We have to be changing into something new. And then I read, no, it says, and the word, by the, according to the word. It says, I don't like that part. I, what I like is the last part, by the spirit. By which they mean the spirit will tell me whatever I want to know to do or whatever I want to do, that's what the spirit has told me. And they just go off. Now, word and the spirit in concert will change you. And ultimately, is that not what we want to be changed? Are we satisfied the way we are? I don't know about you, but I'm not. But that's what the word. As you learn it through this time together, you are going to see that it will touch your life in different ways. And some of these we may be able to talk about. Because you'll read something you never saw before and go, I should have had a V8. No. <laughs> Man, that's new. That's exciting. I'm on an adventure. Don't know where it's going to take me. But like Frodo, when you come back, you'll be rich. And you'll have this little secret in your pocket that will give you long life. It's called the Word of God. Questions? We've got three or four minutes. Actually, I got one minute before I fade out, so do it quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was questioning about when you were talking about the books that came in the Old Testament. Would um, Daniel be considered a major or a minor? He's a major. 
because he wrote more than all the other minor prophets. Take a look at the chapters. Isaiah has 66, Jeremiah has 50-some, Ezekiel has 48, and Daniel has 14. You don't get that much in a minor. That's the only reason why. But, excuse me? Yeah, but it's not as long as Daniel. Daniel is longer. It's, you got to remember this. The Bibles you have in one way have been corrupted but also helped. The Bibles were written as one flowing writing. If you, get, if you can, get a reader's Bible. ESV has a nice little, because it takes out all the verses. And you get a chapter, but it doesn't even have any of those comments on top of a paragraph. And you can read from front to back without being interrupted. Because it wasn't until, uh, I think, the 1400s they began to put chapters into it. And it wasn't until right around Reformation, or maybe after, I, my, my memory on that's a little fuzzy, that they began to put verses. Why? Because Calvin was writing verses, and he wanted to, it's not his fault, but because people wanted to be able to find it quickly. So you can't go to Jeremiah and begin on the first verse and run all the way through until you find that quote. That's why they cut it up. So, it's the amount of words they use. Okay? So burn all your Bibles with verses and chapters in it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> How do you use the psalm, psalms as a word of prayer? Like, when you, like you, mentioned, you, you mentioned a couple yeah. of times using the psalms as a, to help you to, help to, you pray. to get prayers, like uh, themes and things like that. What does that look like to you? Uh, five chapters a day. Uh, it's easy to remember what's the day. Today's the 22nd. Last, chapter, last psalm I'm going to read is 110. I'll start at 106. I'll run, read right through 110. That's the segment. And as I slowly read it, things will come to mind for which I pray or are a reminder. Again, I'll go back. Psalm 110. Um, Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand. And I remember, because I read it, Jesus said to the Pharisees, what does David mean when the, he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this is David writing about somebody else. You say, David wrote it, right? Who's he speaking about? And they go, well, we can't tell you that. We don't know. Jesus knew. Father said to his son, sit at my right hand. And it would be quoted by other New Testament writers as a way of saying, we have one who's exalted to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so you think about those things. And then you, then you begin to pray, Lord, thank you that you have your son at your right hand ruling everything. He's going to destroy all his enemies. I don't see that now. And I know a few enemies out there that need to be destroyed. I know a few things, and I really would like to see that done today. But... Your kingdom come when your kingdom come. Do your work. 
begin to do that work. And, you know, that just kind of, it's like a springboard into my thinking. So you, does that help? Try it. You're part of your homework for the next three weeks. Is just try it. Just, just take a couple psalms and read through. That's your prayer book. Used to be that was a hymn book. That's all you sang. And maybe during the week you have accompaniment. But on Sunday, sang it a cappella. Ladies, ladies with the high voices and gentlemen with a slow Yes, sang it out a cappella. In fact, one of the Bibles I have is a Scottish, from the Scottish Presbyterian Church. It has the Old Testament, New Testament, the one volume. And then it has the Psalms and meter. And this is the, it's a tiny little book. I mean, it's, it's smaller than that book. I have to use a magnifying class to look at the print. But that's what they took to church. And they would say, Today we sing Psalm 25. And they all go back to Psalm 25 in the metrics and then they'd sing it. Someone would pipe out the first note and they were gone. I do work with a congregation that has trouble singing familiar hymns. We sang Amazing Grace today. It was not amazing and it wasn't <laughs> graceful. <laughs> I miss coming here on Sunday morning and having singing. Okay. What else? Oh, we ran over our time. I got to stop talking. Because if I keep talking, I won't be able to talk. No. <laughs> Any other questions? Next, next week. Yep. So you see how I'm plugged into 19th of November. 2017. You have your reading, you have your homework, you have the questions. Um, I think we'll, with, with this many, we may have to be back here. And if we get a few who weren't here today, we'll be up here. And it's easier to record these things. But if not, if, all of, if half of you decide, I don't like this guy, I'm not coming back, we'll be downstairs. <laughs> okay? Nothing? Catherine? Oh, yeah. I will collect and read them. That's my punishment. The Monday after the class, I have to sit down and read all these papers. No, I don't grade them. I, don't, I just read them. Excuse me? Yes, married couples have to do their own homework. Ah. I mean, there is such a thing that the two become one unit, but there's still two of them in that one unit. It's like the Trinity. There's one God, but there's three persons. They still do their own homework. <laughs> yes. Good question. No good answer. <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Okay. This is the sheet that you'll be collecting? Yes. Or, or, or if you want to 
type it out and print it, put it on a computer and print it. If, for those of you who are literate on computers, I'm only semi-literate. My kids let me know I'm only semi-literate. Uh, you can do it that way, then you have a copy. Okay? Of course, I do that, and then I can't figure out, where did I save that? <laughs> what file did I put that in? doesn't make any sense. Okay, let's close with prayer.